Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. This is all totally not getting cut out. Yes! We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. This is episode 23. I am your host, Terry Plucknett, and joining me today is Zach Saltz. How's it going, Zach? What up, what up, what up? Representing from the 785, the middle of Kansas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we are one less today. Todd is off on some trip. So we are... Uh, off uh, on uh, some uh, trip. Yeah. Sounds like, sounds like a Terrence Malick movie. <laughs> Yes, yes, that's not quite the trip I was going for, but uh, but yeah, Todd, Todd is out of town, so he was not able to join us, so this is the first time we've had a two-person podcast in a while, so this will be, uh, be a lot of fun. Before we get started in what we're going to be talking about, there are a few announcements I think we wanted to go over. Um, Zach, why don't you start with yours? Which is, or should I start with mine? I'll I think start. we should. Let's go your announcement, and, and my okay. announcement will we'll go to the end later in the podcast. Okay, that sounds good. So, it, so it, it coincides with one of our segments today. Ah, very, very nice. Oh, I think I know where you're going with this now. So, uh, so my announcement is there will be another Plucknet along coming along very soon, uh, come February. So that is, uh, that is fun. We are expecting. Uh, our little guy is gonna have a gonna have a little sister, uh, so uh, it it begs it begs the question: When will there be a little salts? Uh, that's true, but uh, we're not done asking questions about this. So so when you had your son, I insisted that you should name your son Russell because I mean there's so many reasons. You got Russell Wilson. You got Russell from. Uh, uh, Wow, I'm totally blanking. For Stillwater. Stillwater. Ah, it's it's late. Sorry. Um, yeah, just just a, a, a lot of uh, great Russells out there. But you decide not to go with that. You went with a more literary name. And Atticus. and somewhat cin- cinematic. Yeah. So when you when I heard about this news, I immediately texted you and said Penny Lane and Penny Lane Plucknet, and and your response was even better than that. Uh, Lady Goodman Plucknet. Lady Goodman Plucknet. I like it a lot. Or, or, uh, Alexia, uh, whatever her name is, Alexia Patagonia, no, Alexia, uh, well, in any event, you're not going to listen, uh, to my suggestions, but those are my recommendations. Palexia Aphrodisia, excuse me. Uh, maybe it should be Beth from Denver Plucknet. Ooh, I like that too. Yeah. yeah. Purple Aura. Yeah, or Sapphire. Sapphire, that's a good one too. That's mm-hmm. a good one too. Probably none of those because I'll yeah uh, one not all of them are great and two I'll probably get vetoed. So <laughs> uh, I think the second more than the first, but okay. Yes, yes, probably, probably. Uh, so so yeah, and your your announcement you're you're saving for for later in our podcast. I hear. Yes. So stay tuned. Stay tuned. Teaser. Yes, it's not that there's a little salts coming along. Uh, no, sadly uh, not. <laughs> Although may- maybe there is. I don't know. We'll have to listen. Maybe by the uh, end of this podcast there might be. It might be nine months from now, so we'll see. Yeah, it, it feels like it sometimes when we do this. 
Yes, that's true. <laughs> but maybe with one less, it'll be only two thirds of length. So we'll see. I, I think we, we all know that Todd is the talkative one. So let's get real. I was gonna say, yeah. I think I think we are guaranteed to have um, a a, uh, a much less uh, portion of mumbling throughout this uh, podcast without Todd on, involved. I know, but who's gonna make the funny, pithy, you know, under the breath remarks? I mean, I know the the. The, the sardonic, you know, uh, like, cynical, backhanded insults against us. We will be missing that simply because Todd always loves the movies we hate and hates the movies we love. So, that is true. Yeah, we're going to be missing that. That's okay. Uh, so, uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you are uh, finding us on almostsideways.com, please make sure you get to us on iTunes. Uh, subscribe, rate, review, find us all over the internet, uh, find us on Facebook, find us on Twitter, uh, find us at almostsideways.com. And, uh, and, f- and find Todd, too, because there. we don't know where he is right now. Yes, I mean, and find Todd. If you find Todd, take a picture of it and and tweet us. Oh, uh, I like this. Yes, yes. Hashtag find Todd. Yeah. Hashtag find Todd. I am, I am at almostsideterry. And Zach, your what's your Twitter handle again? Uh, pro underscore Zach thirty six. There you go. So if you find Todd, take a picture, tweet us, Facebook us, something, so uh, so we know where he is. It's kind of like Carmen San Diego, but for Todd. Mm-hmm. And it's probably more likely that he's closer to a casino than not closer. Yes, to a casino. yes. If you are trying to find him, look for him near casinos. Or like Nicolas Cage movies. I think yes, either true. of those would be would be or safe movies to look. that movies with Nicolas Cage that take place in a casino. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's not on here. Who's going to talk about leaving Las Vegas? Exactly. We got to pick mean, up the slack. He could find a way to make it a foreign film. Well, and yeah, and also don't forget about Snake Eyes. That that was in a casino. Oh yeah, that was that was. All right. Well, let's get let's get into what we're actually here to talk about, and that is a. Uh, that is the the actual movies. Um, so first, before we get into what we're going to be talking about, Zach, you missed our last podcast, and one of the things we talked about there is we gave a, a mid year report. And sure, we're now two thirds of the way through the year, but we can still do it. Get so uh, uh, give us your top three of the year so far and your bottom one of the year so far. Okay, well, I'll start with my number three of the year so far, which is a movie that has, uh, as I'm looking on here on IMDb, it has a grand total of 291 votes. So I'm, I'm guessing it's not really a movie that's widely available, maybe not available in your area, but it's worth finding and seeking out uh, if and when it comes out uh, on streaming platforms. It's a film called Vizanti, and it's uh, from Brazil, and the director is Daniela Tomas, who is who has sometimes been a collaborator with uh, the Brazilian director Walter Salas. And uh, it's a movie that is shot entirely in black and white, and it takes place in the 1820s in Brazil. And it's uh, the story of a white landowner who owns this giant plantation with uh, slaves, and he uh, brings in his extended family. And it's sort of about uh, it, it, it's sort of like this sort of upstairs downstairs sort of perspective on this plantation. This guy who's very exploitative. He's a vicious guy, and uh, it, the the very complex dynamics between him, his extended family and this the slaves on the plantation a uh, really good movie pretty brutal to watch at times but um sort of an excellent expose of uh capitalism and uh imperialism at that time so Byzanti is the name of that film you probably haven't heard of it i hadn't heard of it either i went to it 
you know, not knowing what it was, and it was excellent. So worth checking out. Uh, my number two movie of the year so far is a documentary called Three Identical Strangers, directed by Tim Wardell. Ooh, I want to um, see that. Uh, awesome movie. I don't want to say too much about it, because the less you know about it, the better it is. Um, I just saw it a few weeks ago, actually, so and it's really has, has stuck with me. But it's, it's the true life story about these three... Uh, identical brothers who don't discover that each other exists until they're about 20 years old. And when they discover each other and basically reunite, they discover that, you know, and, and somewhat predictably, they have they, they had a lot, have a lot of the same tastes and they were all wrestlers in high school and they have the same favorite colors and they have the same interests in the same kind of women and things like that. So the movie's sort of funny in that respect. But then it kind of goes in this strange direction into the kind of murky and dark backstory about how they were actually separated at birth. And uh, again, without going too much into the movie, it, it really starts to cast... Um, questions about nature versus nurture, you know, whether the fact that these kids were separated into different economic stratospheres, different uh, family dynamics, whether that really has an influence on their personality or whether it's purely genetic. Um, and it's actually sort of a tragic movie in a way, too, because of the way that they had been separated. So, again, don't read too much about it. It's an awesome documentary, one of the best documentaries I've seen in quite a while. Um, and it's uh, been, uh, you know, pretty well reviewed and pretty uh, widely widely seen across the United States. It's been a great year for documentaries, too. Mm -hmm. and, and then my number one movie is Leave No Trace, directed by Deborah Granick, who had also directed Winter's Bone with Jennifer Lawrence. Um, and it's a similar movie in some respects to Winter's Bone. It's about uh, a, a teenage girl and her father who live on the outskirts of Portland. As There's some great, authentic Portland scenery in the movie, by the way. And uh, it's Always sort of about... Yeah. Have you seen this movie, Terry? I have not yet, no. Okay. It's an incredible movie. Um, it, it, it's really about... It, it's told in three acts. It's a classical three-act structure, but it's about their life in, in, in this homeless life living in the forest, and then they eventually have to acclimate into society, but, you know, inevitably there's a sort of uh, resistance to it and uh, recidivism, too, and it's really about the complex dynamics between this father and daughter and, and really how, uh, you know, traumatized they both are in this new environment and uh, phenomenal performances by Ben Foster as the father and uh, a young actress named Thomason McKenzie as the daughter um, these are two of the best performances of the year it's interesting reading about the movie Ben Foster and Deborah Granick uh, initially with, when the script came out they took out about 50% of the dialogue and there's not a whole lot of talking in the movie and there doesn't need to be it's like a beautifully acted silent movie in, in a lot of scenes um, so very much worth checking out it will most assuredly be on my top 10 list at the end of the year would you agree that uh ben foster might be like the most underrated actor of his generation uh yeah i mean he's he's certainly up there and this is quite unlike any performance i've ever seen him in you know i think a lot of times he plays these kind of when i think ben foster i really think of his role in uh, hell or high water like that seems mm -hmm. like the the penultimate ben foster role this kind of over the top caricature in a way but in this movie he's so subdued and so subtle and nuanced um it's it's quite quite an amazing turn but uh i can't imagine any other actor playing it great in this and this young actress is amazing in it, too. I mean, she's awesome, absolutely awesome. So a lot of people have been comparing her to Jennifer Lawrence because the director had, of course, introduced Jennifer Lawrence really to the world with, with Winter's Bones. So we'll, we'll see if, if, uh, if Thomas and McKinsey wins an Oscar in the next few years. Wouldn't that be something? It'd be quite the track record for that director, then. 
Absolutely. And I also have to say, too, I was not meaning for this to happen. This was not a political statement. But as I look at my list, uh, six of my top eight films this year are all directed by women, which is really awesome. I mean, this has been an awesome year for female directors. And, uh, you know, again, I didn't, it, it's, it's, it's not a gimmick or anything like that. Uh, you know, I, I watch these movies, I rate them for, for what I see on screen, but it's really cool seeing um, that, that much uh, power behind the screen and, and representation uh, behind, behind the camera, too. So it's, it's really awesome. Well, and that's exactly what it should be, too. It should be just genuinely authentically this these are the have been the best movies instead of trying to uh you know say oh well i've got to have you know so many movies by by a woman up there or so many movies by a by an african-american up there if they just naturally happen that shows that progress is being made that's true, but you know there are, there are institutional and systemic barriers to it. So uh, you know we need we need good producers out there. We need people who are interested in diversity and equity and, and uh, diverse storytelling. And uh, these women directors are are awesome, and the films they made are are amazing. Interestingly enough, my number one worst movie of the year, which I think you're going to ask me next about, that is my next question, uh, is also directed by a woman. <laughs> interestingly enough, a very very talented director, <laughs> otherwise named Lynn Ramsey, who made we need to talk about Kevin and Ratcatcher and uh, she's actually from Scotland she's a really talented director so nothing really against her I just really kind of hated this movie and, and the name of this movie is You Were, you Were Never Really Here um, and it, had, have you heard of this movie Terry? With I've Joaquin heard of Phoenix? it yeah yeah uh, it got really good reviews, and you know, I was I, I'm excited. I like Lynn Ramsey's work. I went into it excited about it, um, and it was just really a disappointing movie on on all levels. It was really a failure on all levels, and it tells the story of this uh, basically this this guy with PTSD named Joe, and he works as a bodyguard, I think, and uh, he has to rescue this girl who's being abused, and it sort of becomes a conspiratorial thing. There's this big uh, conspiracy behind it, and uh, Joaquin phoenix buffed up for the movie it's you know it's very um distracting seeing him with like you know uh, what what looks like he took a ton of steroids but more than that the movie's just really slow and plodding and extremely violent and just grisly to watch and uh it's like the total it's it's like the inversion of leave no trace which is also you know sort of a father-daughter relationship in a way with very little dialogue but this movie's just plodding and boring and really violent and uh, unpleasant in every aspect but I don't blame I don't blame the people involved necessarily. I think this was just a misstep, and Lynn Ramsey's a good director, so see her other stuff. But this movie sucked. All right. Yeah, I have not seen that one, and maybe now I won't. Yeah, d- avoid it at all costs. So. Anyway, that is my that is my addition to the mid year report. Good, good. Now we are all caught up on that. Exactly. Good. So let's get into our movie review then for uh, for this uh, podcast. I love this movie so much. I did not really like this film at all. This is the most Zack movie ever made. You gotta see it. Movie reviews. And one of the nice things about getting to the end of summer, not only is football season starting, but also it starts to become more seriously award season for the movies. And during the month of August, we had a few movies come out that really are starting to... to um, kickstart some oscar buzz and the one we're going to talk about today is one of those and it is the new spike lee joint black klansman and uh zach i'm going to toss it to you first to to talk about this one a little bit um so tell us what black klansman is all about and what you thought of it 
All right, well, Black Klansman is uh, based on a true story, although even in the opening title, Spike Lee says it's sort of loosely based on a true story about an African-American police officer named Ron Stallworth, who in the 1970s um, worked uh, in Colorado Springs in the police department uh, undercover and was able to uh, successfully infiltrate the Ku Klux Klan by calling them on the phone and impersonating uh, a white nationalist and sort of getting within their ranks. Um, Eventually he's even able to contact David Duke and get a full membership. And the way that he's actually able to make contact, uh, physical contact with the Ku Klux Klan is by using another white officer to uh, basically assume his role in person. So Ron Stallworth in the movie is played by John David Washington, who you may know as Denzel Washington's uh, son. And the, his, uh, uh, the officer who he works with to infiltrate the KKK is played by Adam Driver. And um, the movie is, uh, you know, in, in some ways it's a very typical Spike Lee movie. It's uh, flashy, it's edgy, it certainly is making commentary and very unsubtle commentary about the parallels uh, between the, the Ku Klux Klan in the 1970s and really the rise of uh, fascism in, in the Trump uh, era. And um, those points are hammered home both at the beginning and the end of the movie, but also throughout uh, dialogue with some some pointed dialogue in the movie. Um, you know, it, it's it's in some ways it's a really black comedy in a way because the uh, the 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 clan character characters um, I sometimes feel like are a little bit they verge on the caricature side. Um, they're sort of over the top in some respects. David Duke is played by Topher Grace, and his sort of deadpan delivery is a little ridiculous. Uh, but it is really entertaining watching the movie. Um, you really kind of uh, associate with the Ron Stallworth character. He sort of goes through a moral development, too, because he's sort of torn between allegiance to his job as a police officer, but also <coughs> the, bla- the black community, which um, is, of course, very uh, skeptical toward the, uh, what the police officers are aiming to do and, and, and the real aims of the police department. Um, and he sort of has a political and social uh, awakening throughout the film, too. Um, I wouldn't say it's one of Spike Lee's best films. I've seen almost all of Spike Lee's films. Um, in fact, on a podcast earlier this year, Todd made me watch uh, <laughs> The Sweet Blood of Jesus. And I can definitively say this movie is quite a bit better than The Sweet Blood of Jesus. Um, I, I want to say that, uh, you know, as a white viewer, uh, I come from maybe a different position uh, than Spike Lee does as African-American. Um, I think the movie is you can read it as a sort of outrageous comedy in one sense but of course there are uh, parallels, more than parallels to today's environment and, and and for those reasons it's it's an important movie to see it's a very topical and relevant movie to see maybe unfortunately and um, I think the, the, the commentary that Spike Lee is making as he does with all of his films is really powerful and important and he's uh, uh, again establishing himself as such an important voice uh, for this generation of filmmakers so you know you can skip over to Sweet Blood of Jesus and maybe forget about this one. Uh, I was really pleased with this film, enjoyed it quite a bit, and it, it, it gets a solid three stars. All right. that Yeah, that's about where I have it, too. I have it at a solid three stars. I thought um, it was great to see... It was actually really kind of ironic to see John David Washington starring in this movie after Denzel Washington played such a prominent role in Spike Lee's early career. Uh, this film is kind of seen as like Spike Lee's resurrection 
and a lot of people are saying it's his best movie since Inside Man, which was the last one Denzel Washington was in, and his son is who helps resurrect his career. And John David Washington, up to this point, was most known as being the loudmouth diva wide receiver in the Dwayne Johnson HBO series Ballers. And now all of a sudden he's, you know, a movie star fronting a Spike Lee film. Uh, I think the best thing this movie has going for it is this story. This is such an incredible uh, story. In fact, on the movie poster, I'm looking at it right now, it says, based on a crazy, outrageous, incredible true story. And that's totally what it is. It, it is so unbelievable that if they didn't tell you it was a true story, this movie would be completely blasted as being a piece of propaganda fiction. But it's it really happened, and I think that's what it has going for it the most. Uh, the My problems with it all kind of go to, I think, sometimes Spike Lee's passion is his best friend, but also his worst enemy. I thought at times there are obvious political undertones uh, to what to today's political culture in this film, and Spike Lee it will hit you over the head with it with a sledgehammer, and it didn't need to be, and that's that's one of the things that it almost becomes distracting from being able to tell this this story that is uh, wonderful in itself and it has that message in it without him having to drop these little lines of dialogue to remind you oh hey I'm connecting this to what's happening today I thought that was extremely distracting throughout it but the story is so cool I love how it um, even the soundtrack just sounded like like uh, the 70s it, it really embodied that era um, like I said, John David Washington was amazing. Adam Driver, I thought, was was outstanding. Um, I don't understand how it's getting like best picture buzz, other than the fact that it's Spike Lee making a comeback. But uh, I'm right there with you. I'm saying solid three stars. I enjoyed it, but it wasn't the best it could have been. See, I, I disagree with you in the sense that uh, I really like the political statements that he's making. And I think it's audacious and ambitious to make a movie this overtly political um, but also entertaining. And I think that's that's kind of a rare quality. I was thinking about the comparisons of this movie to Detroit last year, which I know we both really liked. Mm -hmm. And I think Detroit was also kind of showing the about the disconnect uh, and the discord between police and African Americans um, in urban areas in the, in the 60s and 70s. And Detroit was a brutal and graphic movie to watch. It wasn't a pleasant experience watching it. Um, it was a really important one, obviously, in, in, a, in a story that people need to know. Uh, and obviously the, the filmmakers Bigelow and Lee are trying to achieve different things, but I, I commend Spike Lee for making a movie that is politically and socially relevant, but also really entertaining to watch. This movie's quite funny, and uh, has great dialogue in it, and, and really sort of some fantastic sequences in it. Um, I guess if I were to point out my biggest uh, flaw in the movie, and I sort of alluded to this earlier, but I, I think some of the performances, particularly by the clan members, are a little over the top. I really like the performance uh, by, and I'm going to butcher his name, Jasper Pakokoin or something like that, uh, the guy who plays Felix. Mm. I feel like Felix is a vicious, uh, cruel, um, you know, uh, but but believable member of the clan. I feel like uh, there are other actors 
actors who play clan members that are over the top and laughable. Uh, Topher Grace included, and uh, the wife, who I believe the wife of Felix. Again, just yeah. kind of over the top caricatures. And when when I see that, it's like, well, this this is becoming buffoonish in a way. And I think it's more again audacious if the clan is actually made out to be believable people because the clan is real. We know this, all right, in the 1970s and today. So um, maybe not, not so much Spike's fault, but but more I wish the actors had been maybe a little more subdued. There was a another clansman that I think is is going along the lines of what your uh, oh the fat one compla- yeah the guy yeah, who yeah, was right. in uh, in Itania last year oh yeah 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 I know you're talking about yeah yeah um, I yeah there there were some some performances that didn't didn't quite fit uh, one of the things I thought was really interesting and I don't know if it was intentional or not it almost felt like Spike Lee was doing it in spite of himself was drawing these comparisons between um the the kkk movement in the 70s and the the black power movement of the 70s and there were there were moments where there were like parallel stories being told that felt very similar and he was almost comparing the two and showing how they were very almost the same but fighting for opposite causes which I almost felt like it was against what Spike Lee was trying to accomplish. Well, I, I, I think the sequence that you're maybe talking about is like is the, the juxtaposition between the scene where um, the clan is watching The Birth of a Nation and they're laughing outrageously at the movie and they're just finding it a grand spectacle and having a great time. And then Sp- uh, Spike Lee juxtaposes that with the scene of the Black Panthers who are listening to uh, a man who witnessed a, a brutal um, hanging and uh, uh, brutal murder um, in, in the earlier era. Um, a brutal lynching, excuse me. And yeah. uh, I think in that scene you can really see that, you know, okay, these are both social movements but one of them is about uh, violence toward the other. The other is about trying to fight for equity, trying to find for, fight for equal rights. So you can see the divergent paths maybe there, and, and I'm glad he laid out the juxtaposition in that sequence. As if we needed clarity about you know moral <laughs> relativism. I think our president does, but I think the viewer you know can sense it. Well, and and I think I think there were even. That that sequence aside, I think there were other times where there was a, a clear, um, almost similarity being drawn, and I f- and I felt it it didn't quite fit the tone of the rest of the movie. But maybe I was just reading into it a little. Well, but but I, I, yeah, I I know what you're saying. I, I kind of like that though because I think it, it it showed you the complexity of where Ron Stallworth was in the 1970s. I mean, this is he's the only black officer working in an all white department in a mostly white community, so. He feels an allegiance both to his job, but also to um, you know his the, the the other black members of the community, and I think that 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 pulls at him, that sort of divides him internally, and he has to kind of grapple with that. So I think that's what makes his character compelling. Yeah, yeah, it, it was it, it is an entertaining movie, um, and uh, and yes, it it's going to be political not only because of the subject content, but because Spike Lee is is uh is fronting it you know there's there's going to be some of that in there but uh but yeah if go into it knowing what you're going in to see and if you do that you're going to be entertained i believe 
And FYI, co-writer of the movie, Kevin Wilmot, a professor at the University of Kansas, and uh, I'm just going to, you know, name drop, uh, you know, Kevin, Kevin is, a, I guess I could say a friend of mine, I've GTA, I've been a graduate teaching assistant for his classes, and uh, he's an awesome guy, and there's a strong local connection here, so when the movie premiered here, everyone in Lawrence was going crazy, because everyone knows Kevin Wilmot here, but uh, he also co-wrote uh, Chirac, Spike's uh, previous one before this one. Dude, what's with you burying the lead? Oh, man. Well, you know, it's just a casual name drop. You know, I hang out Spike, Kevin. You know, everyone I hang out with. You should it's get a glamorous the, life here. You should Kansas. get him on the podcast. That'd be pretty amazing. I'm sure he has time for that. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll, I'm, I'll work on it. This this little podcast between, broadcasting bet, to dozens. <laughs> right. You know, between between working on a Spike Lee film and being a full time professor and filmmaker, I'm sure he has time for a podcast. Actually, that's the thing about Kevin is he probably like would do it because he's a genuinely great guy, and I'm not t- kidding when I say that he's a wonderful, wonderful guy. So, uh, all right. Well, we're both giving this one three stars. Uh, uh, we definitely have have a little bit of a different take on it, but uh, both of us think it was it was quite entertaining. And uh, better you, than the sweet blood of Jesus. That is for sure. Well, no that, question. That's there. the important part there. Um, do you think this gets nominated for best picture? No, but it it, it I could I could see maybe a screenplay nomination potentially. Yeah, I I would say I'm hearing a lot of best picture buzz, but yeah, I think this fizzles out in the picture race. But yeah, screenplay maybe maybe slip into director simply because it's Spike Lee. Has Spike Lee ever been nominated for director before? That's a good question. I don't think so. You're supposed to know these things. No, I, I, I don't. I don't think so. I can look real fast. Uh, he's been nominated for screen screenwriting, um, nominated for Do the Right Thing for screenplay in 1989, and nominated for uh, documentary for Four Little Girls in 1997. But and no, nominee in both both cases. And, and and we had to look that up. So once again, if you see Todd, take a picture and tweet us. Hey, I said I said he wasn't. I didn't think he had been nominated. I mean, what would he have been nominated for? Todd, Todd would have you know, hated that off the top. The of Academy his head. hated do the right thing. You know, I mean, that's when Spike Spike actually Spike is notable because he's boycotted the Oscars so many times. You know, I mean, yeah. 1989 and and 92. So those were both years that he should have won Oscars. Those, his films were better than the Best Picture winners. So he's a he's a great filmmaker. I I as I said, I've seen almost all of his films. I, I love his films. You know. Yeah. Moving on from Black Klansman. Uh, let's see here. We are moving on into... What are we moving on into? It's our Spotlight segment. Spotlight. So, looking into our Spotlight segment as we're starting to get ready for uh, for uh, the end of the year and we're getting into award season and starting to look at what's going to be nominated this year at the Oscars, uh, we're once again looking at this new category that's been announced, this most popular film category. And it got us thinking, what would have been nominated in most popular film in the past? So we're going to, uh, from time to time, go back and look at different years and look at what we think would have been nominated and what would have won uh, for achievement in popular film, best popular film of the year and i think it's i think it's best popular film not most popular film so i think there is a distinction to be drawn there um so we're gonna go through our nominees and give our winner and also we're gonna look at uh since we're 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 talking about 2017 today just this last year and since we're looking at that year it was a year that had nine best picture nominees we're also going to say well if this was the old system and there were only five what do we think would have been those five that would have stood out so 
Uh, I'm gonna go ahead and go first on my uh, my best popular film category for 2017. Uh, my five nominees. Um, I don't truly love this, but I'm gonna go with it. My five nominees for best popular film. And by the way, the way I I figured this out. Let me uh, let me say that first. The way I figured mine out is I went to the box office for uh, last year, and I looked at, I believe it was the top 20 in box office? Yeah, top 20 in box office from last year, and pulled from there, like, the f five of the most critically acclaimed films. That's what I was going for. So, in alphabetical order, my five nominated for Best Popular Film from 2017 are Get Out, It, Logan, The Greatest Showman, and Wonder Woman. And my winner is Wonder Woman. So that, that's what I'm going with with, uh, with my Best Popular. I think there's a few in there that definitely would have been nominated. And I, my, my winner came down to Get Out and Wonder Woman. And... Um, and because both were very kind of landmark in what they stood for, and I felt Wonder Woman probably would have taken it over over Get Out simply because of uh, of that power of having that female superhero over the the film the more critically acclaimed film that was the uh, that ended up getting nominated for picture and winning Oscars other places. Well, yeah, so. First of all, I, I think we should go back a second. I, I want to officially say I'm not totally av averse to this category. I mean, if you think about the very first Oscars, you know, basically the first Oscars did this. The first Oscars had, you know, the best achievement in film, and then the other one was best achievement in artistic film. And the winners that year were Wings and Sunrise, and both films are very popular. Or not, well, popular, but also both films are very good. They actually hold up for 1927. So I think there is a possibility that, that you know, if, if it's done right, it, it could work. And we now we know now more than ever that uh, there are some several popular films that actually are of really high quality. So Agree completely. Um, uh, I, I I basically went about it the same method that you did. Interestingly enough, I only had one film that you nominated. Oh, interesting. And that, and that film was Logan. Uh, but my other four nominees uh, on top of Logan were Beauty and the Beast, Girls Trip, Star Wars The Last Jedi, and Thor Ragnarok. And I think with Star Wars and Thor Ragnarok, those were later releases in the year. Girls Trip even had some Oscar buzz going into Oscar season, particularly with, Timoth uh, uh, with uh, Tiffany uh, Haddish. And I don't know, Beauty and the Beast, it seems like we needed some kind of Disney nominee. So um, I, in my selection of the winner among that group would be Star Wars The Last Jedi, even though it divided some critics and fans. But I just feel like being the number one film of the year and being, you know, as legendary as the franchise as it is, uh, you know, why not give it the inaugural Best Popular Film Award? Yeah, and I... I think with mine, one of the things I tried to stay away from a little bit is I tried the best I can to stay away from franchises, because I mean they they are popular, they get a lot of uh, they earn a lot of money, uh, but at the same time they I I don't know I I can't see see uh, the Oscars coming up with the category of you know best franchised movie. I mean I I think Wonder Woman and Logan are parts of franchises but they are so drastically different from the rest of their franchises that they can be they can be placed in there and the other three i think were were surprise hits 
that were critical darlings too. Well, Greatest yeah. Showman not so much, but it was it wasn't yeah. as much of a critical darling, but it was a surprise hit. Yeah. What's interesting is you put Get Out on your list, and I don't know. I I think the Oscars would have would have you know still considered it less of a popular film and more of a critically lauded film. Although there's a very real possibility that it would get caught in the mix between the two. Um, so well, and that, and that's gonna be one of the things that's interesting is can a film that's nominated for Best Picture also be eligible? Or best popular. I mean, you look at like Forrest Gump. You know, what would Forrest Gump? I mean, it, it it got good reviews, but not the world's greatest reviews when it came out, and it was an extremely high-grossing film. So I suspect in '94 it would have been the popular film winner, and yet it won Best Picture. So I sense that will down the road there's going to be several of these films that really straddle the line between both, and maybe get screwed over because of it. Now, 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 do you think if this award was out in '94? that Forrest Gump would have one best popular film and then something like Pulp Fiction or Shawshank Redemption wins best picture. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's hard to say, but uh, yeah, yeah I, I, I would think so. Um, I mean, you you know, assuming that Forrest Gump wouldn't be nominated, for, wouldn't be eligible for both categories, you know, you would have to think that probably Pulp Fiction was the runner-up that year in terms of vote-getting because it won screenplay, so... Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, it, it's going to be really interesting how this is how this is going to play out. It's going to mess with a lot of the uh, the Oscar pools, I think, because once you know who the nominees are, I mean, what direction is it going to go? It, it, it's really going to be interesting to see that. So, speaking of the normal list, we also came up with our five nominees for Best Picture in 2017. And yes. As I was saying, I think Get Out could sort of get lost, and, and Get Out actually was not one of my five nominees for Best Picture either. Oh, interesting. I, th- I think because of the system, it, it would have been fragmented, and I think it, it would have lost some uh, cachet with voters being a, a January, re- or excuse me, re- being released in February, and just, again, straddling the line, being sort of amb- ambivalent, whether it's a popular film or a critically cr- acclaimed film. But uh, my five nominees for Best Picture, in terms of, I guess, critical taste, uh, were Darkest Hour, Lady Bird, The Post, The Shape of Water, and Three Billboards uh, Outside Ebbing, Missouri, and presumably The Shape of Water would still win. I don't know why it wouldn't. That, that's interesting. Darkest Hour, uh, I, to me, Darkest Hour was the film that, that barely snuck into the Best Picture party to begin with. Um, I, I can't remember off the top of my head right now which film, whose place it took. But uh, but Darkest Hour was not on anybody's radar to get into the nine that that uh, were originally nominated to begin really? with. Really, I, I I disagree. I, it got it got very good reviews, it, it, and it was a big studio release, big director Joe Wright, and everyone knew that Gary Oldman was the odds-on favorite. So I feel like it it would have been easily a nominee. Yeah, it it did have have all that going for it, but I I don't. Th- it was uh, on a lot of people's periphery when it came to the actual nom- nomination and I think um, it was a toss up between no I, actually it was I think it was the biggest surprise when uh, when nominations came out that Darkest Hour was able to get in there now I kept so I kept Get Out off because again I just think it would straddle the line I also didn't have uh, Phantom Th- I, I didn't have I, I Tanya Phantom Thread or 
um, call me by your name on the list. But again, I, I think, you know, Spielberg was, uh, you know, is a force to be reckoned with. And I think Lady Bird and Three Billboards had strong Oscar campaigns. I, Tanya wasn't nominated for Best Picture. Oh, it wasn't? Okay, then my bad. Well, uh, Dunkirk. Uh, Dunkirk. Okay, yeah, so Dunkirk. And again, that probably would have been a film that Oscar voters wouldn't have known whether to put in the popular category or the critically acclaimed category. Uh, that's a valid point. So so you're looking at what would the top five have been with best popular film in there as well? Okay. Yes. Okay, just yes. Just, just specifying there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I went back and looked at uh, mine and Todd's uh, predictions for best picture uh, from last year, and the two films that both of us were thinking uh, might get in were The Big Sick and The Florida Project, were two that were right there. Uh, Todd also said Mudbound had a really good chance of getting in. He had he had that as, as a, the seventh nominee to get in. So uh, neither of us even had had Darkest Hour on our radar at all. And and really, call me by your name kind of snuck in too. It, it was it was on the borderline to get in as well. Um, for mine, I think I went with a much more traditional list for my top five. Coming up, even to Oscar Sunday, there were there was a five, really a five film race for what could potentially pull out Best Picture. And I don't think anyone would have been completely shocked if any of these five took it. And so I went with that partially because everything is kind of in there. So I said Shape of Water, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, Get Out, Lady Bird, and Dunkirk. And if you think about the traditional five for Best Picture, you usually have a British film. Well, Dunkirk's your British film. You usually have an indie comedy with Lady Bird. Uh, You have a a breakout hit with Get Out. Um, And then you have... The more the more heavy hitters. I mean, the one the two main favorites were Shape of Water and Three Billboards, but the other three were very much a part of it. So I think if there were only five, that would have been it. Uh, but I mean, well, it who sounds knows? like our it sounds like our biggest disagreement is is Dunkirk or Darkest Hour because I agree with you. They always give it to a British film. I just think Darkest Hour was a better marketed film, and Joe Wright had more cachet maybe than even Christopher Nolan. So, but you know, it's it's basically semantics. I mean, yeah. three of the five are, are, are on our list are the same. Th- so. This was also the film that finally got Christopher Nolan a Best Director nomination too. So yeah. Yeah, but I was not a fan. And let's be clear, these are not the films that we would have picked, okay? Oh, I did right. not. Yeah. I, it, I thought Darkest Hour sucked. I mean, this it was not deserving at all. But I always feel like the Oscars, the other four movies I think are, de- well, I, I didn't like Three Billboards either, but that was always going to get nominated. I feel like every year under the old system of five nominees, there was always one film that absolutely did not belong at all, and Darkest Hour would, would be that film. Although, the, the you know, I also said The Post, but that's, you know, uh, th- that had the same reaction when it was nominated this year among the nine films, so... Yeah, but uh, everyone kind of had a feeling the post was going to get in, and I have no idea exactly, how. Exactly, yeah. How did yeah. 5% of the voters put that number one? Over the Florida Project, too, which is yeah. outrageous. Have you yeah, seen over, the Florida Project yet, Terry? I did. I did see it. I did. Uh, didn't love it as much as you did, but I thought it was very good. Wow. Okay. Is it in your top ten of the year? No. Is it better than Elizabethtown? If you had to watch the Florida Project <laughs> or Elizabethtown, which would you choose? I, I think... I think uh, I'll, I'll compromise with you here. I think I would probably watch Elizabethtown again, but I thought that Florida Project was a better movie. How's that? That's acceptable. Okay, <laughs> maybe. I, <don't... laughs> I, I think, to me, Elizabethtown is a re- very rewatchable movie. Where it, honestly, Florida Project is kind of a hard movie to watch again because of just how, how at times just 
tragic it is. Yeah. Now, the real question is, would Elizabeth Town have been nominated for Best Popular Film of 05? No. It wouldn't uh, have, because yeah, nobody liked pro- it. <laughs> it. Was it nominated for the Golden Raspberry that year? That, that's the Razzie? Oh, it, it should have been, but... Probably should have been, but... Yeah. But uh, well, maybe we'll have to wait for future podcasts. So, so just as uh, FYI, we're planning on continuing this feature, if you're still listening to us through some miraculous force, uh, if you think yes. this segment is interesting. We're going to cover a different year every podcast, so maybe next time it will be 2005, and we'll talk about how Elizabeth Town should have been on the, in the list of popular nominees, along with uh, uh, History of Violence. Yes, there we go. There we go. Elizabeth Town, History of Violence... Um. Yeah, Mr. Brooks. No, that's the wrong one. Mr. Brooks, um, Grizzly Man. Grizzly Man. Vantage Point. There we go. Yeah. Or we're, we're spanning 07, years now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Rewind. And, uh, by By the way, uh, it was not nominated for any Razzies that year. Oh. So there wow. you go. It Razzies was nominated really for. It was nominated for a Grammy though. There was an original song by Tom Petty in it. Wow. Interesting. We don't need to deep You're dive telling on. me that Orla- Orlando Bloom and, and Kirsten Dunst weren't the worst on-screen couple. You're saying that there was a worse on-screen couple that year? Apparently. Apparently. Wow. Okay. Oh, wait. It got nominated for... Oh, it won a yoga award for uh, worst foreign actor Orlando Bloom. <laughs> <laughs> what are the yoga awards... This is fascinating now. There's a brand new award I never heard of before. Have you ever heard of the Yoga Awards? There's the Goya Awards. Are are you uh, dyslexic? The, the the Goya Awards are the Spanish Awards, the Spanish Academy Awards. Is it listed as Yoga for some reason? Maybe? So it's listed no. as maybe wait. that's just a parody of. That's got to be it. That's got to be it. The like it's the a Golden parody of the Goya Awards being the parody of the Oscars. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Very sophisticated film viewers, those Spaniards. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Goodness gracious. Okay, well let's let's get off of that deep dive and tangent. Now let's move into our power rankings for this week. You can't top that. Yeah, that's the movie about the horse. I'm gonna pull an audible at the last minute here. I'm kind of nervous now. Power rankings. Not including Fargo. Can't choose Fargo ever again. So last time, Todd was our winner uh, and uh, left us a category and then ran away. So once again, if you can find Todd, t- <laughs> Twitter, uh, send us a tweet of a picture of him uh, somewhere near a casino and we will, uh, we, will, um, we will reward you somehow. How are we going to reward this? I think with a yoga award. Yeah, we, we may have to give them a yoga award, which, of course, will be a picture of Zach doing yoga. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that will be that will be the Almost Sideways Yoga Award. I like it. I, I, I like it, too. Anyways, so uh, Todd left us with a category, and this category is quite a, a behemoth to uh, undertake. And the category left us with was Best Foreign Films... In our lifetime. Now, there's a couple things that's wrong with this category. First off, this is just like huge to talk about foreign films for like a 25, 30 year period, which leads to the other problem with this, and that is 
each of us has a different time frame to be looking at. I mean, I have a little bit more uh, more years on all you guys, so I got a little bit more of an advantage, even though, honestly, I haven't seen any foreign films from the years of uh, 1985 to 1995, so that didn't really help me at all. But, uh, but yeah, Todd was at... Was Todd at the... No, Adam was at the most disadvantage on this. And then Todd... Uh, so it was it, it, it's a bad category and I can I can say that to to uh, to the podcast listeners now because Todd's not here what do you think uh, yeah well it's a you know I, I it's an interesting category um, I think uh, the worst foreign films are usually better than some of the best American films so you know anytime we can talk about foreign films it's always a always a plus I was thinking about this at the top of the podcast I mean we're talking Spike Lee and foreign films today I mean, if you're a fan of uh, if you're a fan of Hollywood, you you probably shouldn't listen to this podcast. But you're probably bored out of your mind right now. But uh, yes. yes, yes. So uh, Zach, why don't you hit us with your number five foreign film that has debuted in your lifetime? Well, you know, I, I, I like Terry. I mean, it's such a broad category. I decided to add some of my own particular parameters on it. I decided to focus on um, a f- each one of my five films. I'm not really so much going in a one through five order, but I want to focus on five different films from five different parts of the world. So I'm trying to not repeat continents. And I'm not necessarily saying these are even the best films from the continent that they came from, but just films that I thought about that really stuck with me and made impression on me. So my number five film, I guess if we want to use an arbitrary number system, is from Japan. And maybe this is my sort of East Asian representation, but uh, it's a 2004 film called Nobody Knows, made by who I think is uh, maybe the best Japanese director of my lifetime, and that's Hirokazu Koreeda, who uh, has done Mabrosi and Afterlife, and more recently, like Father Like Son and Still Walking. Um, I think this is his best film, although really all of his films are really sublime, and this tells the story about uh, a group of uh, young kids, their brothers and sisters, and basically they're left to fend for themselves in this small Tokyo apartment when their mother, who is sort of childlike in her own right, kind of goes missing and so it's sort of like a survival story a little bit but it's uh, like a lot of creative films it's very kind of poignant and um, very humanistic and funny but also tragic in a way because these kids kind of have to fend for themselves and it basically covers a year in their life and we kind of associate with the oldest brother named Akira and he's actually played by a young actor named Yuya Yagira who actually won best actor at Cannes in 2004 for this role so this isn't just some random movie this was actually a very critically lauded movie um, really awesome movie. Uh, creative stuff is is great, and uh, nobody knows is a it's a really touching, interesting film that uh, still sticks with me even you know fourteen years after I saw it. All right, yeah, that, that's a that's a a good rule you put on yourself. If I could have even considered possibly achieving that, I I would have thought of doing something like that, but I was pretty sure I couldn't. Uh, the way I started out is I went through and uh, looked at, I basically came up with a list of about my top 25 from, uh, from this, the, the last 33 years. And in doing so, I, I discovered that I've only seen two uh, foreign films before the year 2000 that fit the category, so between 1985 and 1999. Uh, most of the, the great foreign films I've seen have come after that and the number five on my list is actually from the year 2000 and that is Battle Royale directed by Kenji Fukusaku 
and I think this is a film that belongs on this list not only because it's an amazing film but because of how it has influenced so many more stories moving forward this is definitely a precursor to something like the hunger games as it is the story of a japanese uh, mandate by the government that uh, to control the uh, unruliness of its youth uh, one middle school class is chosen per year to be taken to an island and fight to the death and the winner comes off the island, and if they refuse to fight, all of them die. And it is fascinating to watch these students uh, go through this and realize that they're going to have to uh, they're going to have to murder their best friends. And uh, I think it's it's much more moving and impactful than a film like Hunger Games because of uh, just the the way it's done. Uh, it is a brutally violent film. It's not for the faint of heart. It is definitely, uh, it's definitely a Japanese film in that way. But it, it's absolutely incredible to watch, and it will leave you spellbound the whole time. And uh, the ending is remarkable. Battle Royale. That's what I've got at number five. Yeah. Also, uh, Quentin Tarantino's number one film um, of the the. I think from 1992 to 2009, he listed it as his uh, favorite film as well. So a popular choice. And I, I echo a lot of your sentiments. I think that's a, that's a really strong film. Although I will say that it, with Corieta's film, it's so radically different than Battle Royale. It's nice to see Japanese film represented in a more broader spectrum than just violent, over-the-top blood and gore. So mm-hmm. uh, check out both films if you're at all interested in Japanese cinema. Uh, number four, um, I tried to cho- I tried my best. I gave it the best college try I could to choose a film from Africa, and I've seen a few of them. Uh, not as many as I should. Um, uh, some good ones include Tsotsi, which uh, won the Oscar from South Africa, Timbuktu, Gulwar Mulade, uh, by the great director uh, Sembene. But uh, the film that I ultimately went with is a German film that is, takes place in Africa. Uh, so that's, I, I know I'm cheating a little bit here, but it's the uh, <laughs> 2003 or 2002 best foreign film at the Oscars, Nowhere in Africa, by the German director Caroline Link. And even though it's told mainly from German characters' point of view, Africa is, of course, very much a part of the story. And it tells the true story of a Jewish refugee family that leaves uh, Germany uh, right when Hitler comes to power. And they uh, move to Kenya, and uh, they have to deal with Kenya with the elements. Uh, they are basically the only white family in a black community, but uh, they're also Jewish, and they have to deal with that and sort of the hardships of uh, adjusting to this new life. And what's cool about the movie is that uh, we really get good perspectives from each of the three members of the family, the father, the mother, and the daughter, and they go through very different experiences, and they have very different um, viewpoints and perspectives about this transition in their lives. And uh, the characters that they meet along the way are really interesting. And basically, you cover this family through um, the years of Nazi rule in Germany. So the movie goes from the mid to early 30s all the way through the end of the war. And you see the family grow and the the daughter grow up. And um, it's an absolutely wonderful film. Uh, It's one of the few best foreign film winners that I think is truly deserving. And yet it didn't really get the kind of recognition that I think it deserves. So uh, if you, if it's, it's a, you know, really cool kind of epic. So check it out nowhere in africa an absolutely deserving foreign film winner all right number four on my list by the way i haven't seen either of the films you've mentioned so far um (laughs) uh, number four on my list is a french film from 2008 
uh, called The Class, directed by Laurent Contet. And this is a film that, when it came out, I, I found it being very near and dear to my heart because it is a story of a teacher working his way through a high school uh, school year. And being a teacher, I thought it was so realistic in its portrayal of what it's like to be a teacher and what it's like to to live the life of being a part of these kids' lives for uh, nine months out of the year. Um, it's a film that I haven't seen in a while and I want to go back and revisit because it was it had such an impact on me when I first saw it. Uh, the uh, the main character, the teacher, uh, Francois Begardot. This is the best part about doing this is I'm going to butcher everybody's name as I'm going through these. But he, he it does a wonderful job in this. And looking at it, he's a real-life teacher himself that was cast in this movie. But uh, great movie, uh, wonderful portrayal of what it, what it means to, uh, to be a teacher and work in a school. So uh, I had to put it in there. The class is my number four. Yeah, I agree. That's a really strong film. Um, from what I remember about it, uh, there are long stretches of the film that really just take place in the classroom with interactions between the teacher and the students. It's a very diverse and um, socially heterogeneous school, if I remember correctly, in an urban mm-hmm. area. So there's a lot of diversity in the classroom. Um, and it seemed like, yeah, it's not surprising to hear that the guy was a teacher. I remember there's a real authenticity in the movie that is hard to replicate. Yeah, and can I just say b- before we move on, so a lot of this list for me, I, I went through my list and saw what, what I had ranked very high in, in foreign films, and the list kind of turned into not only best, but most memorable. I find myself looking at some of these titles and saying, oh yeah, I remember I loved it, but I don't remember anything else about that movie. <laughs> and it seems to happen more times than not with, or more times with foreign films than with, with American films, and it might just be that language barrier, but the ones on this list are ones that definitely made an impact and have uh, have stuck in my memory a lot longer. Yeah, I remember the class pretty well, actually. I saw it when it came out, and there are some things I specifically remember about that movie, in particular a sequence where students kind of misinterpret what the teacher says, and they think that he's insulting the students when really he's trying to acclimate oh, yeah. them to real life and it's sort of an interesting sort of interpretation of how language is used particularly in a racial and socioeconomic context so yeah, just a really cool movie though yeah. I, I would highly recommend it too the, the one scene i remember vividly from it is a uh, a staff meeting where they have a debate amongst the teachers on whether or not to replace the coffee pot <laughs> well there you go see i don't I, remember that scene at all but, it, but, sh- but for, for me i i i watch that scene i'm like man that this this happens this actually happens <laughs> little little conversations like this so you're just like why why are we taking time out of our out of our busy schedule to to talk about this because it matters to someone that's why but yeah for sure <laughs> all right all right well number three on my list technically my number four film i'm saying is my african film even though it was a german film now my number three film is going to be the european film from my list and it's also a german film and also a german film that won best foreign language film at the oscars and that film is the lives of others uh directed by florian henkel von donnersmark and uh for a long time this was uh, maybe my number one film of all time um uh, it's a 
fantastic film that's set in 1984 in East Berlin about uh, the secret, the East German secret police, and in particular one agent uh, named Wiesler, and he uh, he's sort of this uh, undercover agent who spies on uh, this playwright who he thinks is um, is a dissenter and is saying uh, you know uh, uh, disloyal things about the East German regime. And gradually, over the course of the film, he begins to associate and have um, an, a stronger emotional and political bond with this playwright, uh, Georg Draymond. And so um, it's sort of about a political coming of age for this, you know, stunted, uh, lowly Stasi officer. Um, it's a great humanist portrait of uh, a character who's conflicted politically and morally. And uh, it shows a really interesting time period in, in German history. Um, it's a great history lesson, and it's a remarkable screenplay, and the performances are stellar, and uh, it's a masterpiece. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a riveting film experience if you've never seen it before, and even op- upon re- repeat viewings, it, it holds up really well. So The Lives of Others, my European uh, foreign language film. That one I've seen, and it might be popping up later. Well, good. It sounds like we're in agreement on a lot of these. Yeah, number number three on my list um, is the first repeat country, kind of. I mean, you, you can, depending on how you define foreign film, this might be slightly bending the rules a little bit, but I don't think so. I'm going with it. Number uh, three on my list is the 2007 film The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, uh, directed by Julian Schnabel, uh, tells the story, the true story, of a man uh, played by Matthew Amalric, uh, probably most known commercially as the villain in Quantum of Solace. Uh, He plays a a man who's a wealthy, well-off man who has a stroke and is paralyzed uh, all over his body except for one eye. And he uh, works with his nurse to learn how to communicate with his one eye and actually ends up writing a book about his life. Um, communicating through just his one eye, and this is uh, a movie that, on the surface, it can it sounds a little boring, but it is absolutely riveting and moving. Um, Al Mulrick gives an amazing performance that deserved more recognition than it got. Um, Schnabel was able to uh, take this movie and end up getting a Best Director nomination out of this. Um, it is absolutely stunning. Uh, how this film was uh, was made and how the story was told and uh, talk about leaving an impact this m- film definitely left an impact on me so that is why it's my number three yeah it's a great pick you know if we if we just reviewed foreign language films we would never there would never be disagreements because they're all <laughs> wonderful films um, absolutely I'd actually read the book uh, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly prior to seeing the film and um, the film absolutely did it justice and it's an incredible kind of aesthetic experience you know Schnabel literally puts you in the subjective point of view of Bobby the character and uh, you get to see, you feel the, the powerlessness that he has especially at first about his inability to communicate at all with anyone and then you sort of it's interesting because the, the movie's about the you know the physicality of it and the, the sort of repression of it there's a sexual dynamic to it too and it's uh, a fascinating portrait and i haven't seen it since it came out but i remember lots of it and it, it made an incredible impact on me too you realize why we like all these right because the bad foreign films never come to america that is that's Yes, that's true. Except for maybe Holy Motors. That was a pretty bad one. If I that, remember this is true. This I don't is know true. if that will make our list. Um, 
Yes, excellent <laughs> choice. And I, I would also like to add too. It sounds like a lot of these films, if 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 you're relatively new to foreign films, or if you're a little bit intimidated by them, you know, some of these are great foreign films to watch if you've never seen a foreign film before. You know, Absolutely. The Diving Bell and the Butterfly has a really universal message, and even if you know subtitles aren't really your thing, it's a film that it's not that difficult to follow, and I think it's a really um, a, a film that connects with audiences really well, regardless of your nationality or your first language. Agreed. Okay, so I'm moving on to my number two film, which is my, uh, I guess, my selection from the continent of South America, and that is City of God from 2002, directed by Fernando Morales and Katia Lund. Um, this was also a film that did pretty well in terms of Oscar nominations. I believe Morales got a nomination out of this, and uh, it's an incredible film that is set on the streets of uh, Rio de Janeiro, and uh, we kind of get this glimpse of warring uh, factions of young mobsters, and uh, the perspective that we see this through is through a kid named Rocket, and we sort of see, the film starts out when he's a very young kid, and he has these friends, and then it kind of shows them as they develop into teenagers. And it goes over, you know, the course of several years. And Rocket stays on the fringes of these gangs, but he becomes also a photographer and, and, a, and a journalist. And so he starts investigating who they are. And there's a very complex web. In fact, if there's any real similarity that this film has, it's really to Goodfellas. If you're a fan of Goodfellas, this is an excellent film because, or, or an excellent sort of companion piece, because you get to know the personalities of all these kids on the street who are affiliated in some way or another with, with the, uh, uh, the mob. Um, and it's a great sort of look at this life that is decidedly unromantic but at the same time through Rocket's perspective we see a kid growing up and so there are some romantic elements to it as well um, and the, 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 uh, what the movie really got praised for was its fast-paced editing and its cinematography and those aesthetic components are awesome I mean they in, in many ways they're precedent setting a lot of those sort of action films we see today the Mission Impossible films I, I, I would I, I would think they would watch City of God and sort of see that as a precedent for the quick cuts and the rapid pace uh, and the story Storytelling is great, so um, absolutely a, a must-see foreign film uh, from this generation. If you haven't seen it, City of God, uh, awesome, awesome film. City of God is a great example of a movie I've seen. I remember really liking it when I watched it. I remember absolutely nothing about it. I, I don't well, know why. I just don't. It has a labyrinthine plot, and you do. It's one of those films that you gotta stick with, which is why I think foreign films are so great. You can't, you know, text and watch the film. There are a lot of characters in it, and there's a lot of things that happen in the film. But it's it's really fast paced, and it's always interesting, and the story moves at a really fast pace too. It never gets dull or repetitive. So I, I check it out again. I, I should. I should. Okay, number two on my list. Um, I think looking at foreign films over the last 30 years uh it would be hard to have a discussion about them without bringing up this film and this is the 1997 uh or 1998 film life is beautiful uh written and directed by roberto benini uh who ended up winning best actor for it at one best foreign film it was nominated for best picture uh, i actually just finally saw this film a couple years ago for the first time and was blown away by it. Uh, this is a film about a man who uh, ends up in a concentration camp during uh, World War II and is able to somehow get his son into his quarters with him. And his entire goal 
throughout his time in the concentration camp is to not let his son realize what is going on and turns it into a game. And in some ways, he had th this film kind of becomes a comedy at times of what uh, Roberto Benigni's character Guido is able to do uh, for his son and help him realize that there is a silver lining and a positive side to everything, even being in a concentration camp. It is, it is an absolutely amazing feat of cinema. Uh, his performance is amazing. Uh, the the uh, the story is amazing. Uh, the ending is spectacular and remarkable, and the only way it could have been done. Uh, I absolutely loved it, and there's a reason why it got all the recognition it got. It's because it's it's so incredible. So number two, life is beautiful. Yeah, a good pick, and uh, certainly a, an instrumental foreign film, very widely seen foreign film, and widely recognized at the Oscars, too. Um, although one wonders if Jim Carrey had been nominated that year, would Roberto Benigni have won? No. He wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I mean, I always, you know, you always talk about that as being one of the worst snubs ever, is, is uh, Jim Carrey missing out on that nomination. But if that happened, then he probably would have won, which would have meant we would have missed Roberto Benigni walking over the, the seats and jumping up and yeah. down on stage, which is one of the most iconic moments in Oscar history. So, Well, if, of course, he had won earlier in the evening for Best Foreign Film, and then when he won Best Actor, which was unexpected, he said, I've ran out of all my English, which was always <laughs> funny. Um, but, you know, I was watching the Oscars at that time. I was 10 years old and very precocious. And uh, I still think that uh, that was the, one of the most shocking moments of all time when Roberto Benigni won. I mean, f it was a film that was supposed to win Best Foreign Film, but no one thought that Benigni would win Best Actor. I mean, that that, that was sort of just a, a, a token nomination in a way, as if to say, like, this was a good movie, we're going to give him a recognition, but there's no conceivable way he could win. And it was shocking when he did. And I, and I think that just goes to the the universal love that that was outpoured for this film that that ended up getting so much more recognition than anybody anybody could have thought and and he was up against some pretty heavy hitters in Hollywood and Tom that, Hanks in that Edward yeah. Norton for sure yeah yeah all right well my number one foreign language film is uh, the my I guess my selection from the Middle East. And that is Oscar Fahadi's A Separation from 2011, also a Best Foreign Film winner. And uh, I guess it's also maybe now part of the time of the podcast for me to make my announcement, my such, such important self-aggrandizing announcement, that um, I think at this point in my life, as I'm 31 years old and thinking about all these movies that have come out during the course of my life, I, I think at this point I can fairly say with confidence that A Separation is the best movie I've ever seen. Uh, wow. I think it, I, I think it's my number one film of all time. Um, it took a little while for me to say that. It took me watching it three or four times. Uh, but it is uh, simply um, just unlike any other movie I've ever seen in terms of its impact, its emotional uh, connection, um, its uh, storytelling, uh, the characters and the performances. Um, it tells the story of uh, a couple, a married couple who are in the process of separating and they live in Tehran in Iran. And they have a young daughter, and they also the the husband's father is elderly, and they care for him. And uh, into they bring into the picture this housekeeper who's supposed to take care of the elderly fa uh, grandfather character. And uh, basically, without spoiling it too much, you really shouldn't know anything about this movie if you haven't seen it. Um, but what happens is it. that 
well, without again, well, first of all, you should, and uh, I know. it's the be- because it's the best movie ever made. But um, what happens is there are mi- there's miscommunication throughout, and miscommunication between the the husband and wife, the father and the daughter, the old man, the housekeeper. They all are these very disconnected characters, and they're alienated from each other, and they're alienated because of the culture in Iran, and they're alienated because of technology and modern amenities, and also, maybe most importantly, class and economic wealth and privilege. And this movie is all about how, in spite of those disconnections, they draw us apart, but through some miracle, maybe we can find a sense of connectiveness. And I know it's kind of, I'm kind of being blasé about the film and being a little indirect and abstract, but uh, I think it has a really deep and profound message about uh, humanity. And it's maybe the only film I could say, with the possible exception of Schindler's List, that if you were to see it, I think you would become a better person human being. I think it's a movie that teaches you how to be a, a good human, a, a good, compassionate human being. And so, um, in that sense, it has to be the best movie I've ever seen. Um, so, a separation from Iran. If there's one movie you should see that will make you a better person for the rest of your life, I, I implore you to check out this film. And I'm talking to you, Terry Plucknan, and to all the listeners out there, see A Separation. Yeah, I it, it's one I've I've wanted to see. I haven't seen that one. I just recently watched The Salesman, which was uh, Farhadi's uh, next film after a separation, and I and that one was well. Very he good. made he made the past, and then oh, and then oh, the salesman. Yeah, yeah. And the salesman was my number one film of 2016. And what's interesting about him as a filmmaker is he he has very similar themes in his films, and the conflicts in, in many ways are very similar too. And they all kind of build upon each other. So maybe like Tarantino in a way, he 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 deals with similar sort of circumstances and genres, but uh, making different statements sometimes too. So I'm really excited for his next film. I think he's the best living director, I'm, or the most exciting living director. And, and and it's interesting because he's he's come out with these these landmark films. He's won two Oscars now, yet he has decided that he is going to stay in Iran and keep making Iranian films instead of try to make an English film, try to make an American film, come to Hollywood for anything. No, he's staying there and he's making the films his country needs him to make, which is is a, a noble thing to do. Yes, that is true. Although he has a, a Spanish cast for his upcoming film, Everybody Knows, and he did shoot the past in France with Berenice Bejot. So he has spread out a little bit, but but he has stayed very true to his Iranian roots. Yes. All right. Uh, number one on my list has been mentioned already, and that is 2007's The Lives of Others. Uh, I remember when this movie won Best Foreign Film, and it was a shock. And everyone said, what the heck is this German film by this four-named German dude that beat and it's not Pan's... it's about Nazis. Yeah, that beat Pan's Labyrinth to, to best foreign film. Because Pan's Labyrinth was hands down the favorite going in. And it had been nominated for many other Oscars. And it was like, uh, it was a shoe-in to win this. And then the next year, The Lives of Others came out, and everyone went, oh, oh, that's why it won. Because it is a remarkably stunning film. Uh, Just incredible. All the stuff Zach's already said, he already told you basically what it's about. Um, Ulrich Muhey, who plays the main character, uh, gives an uh, an amazing performance in what became his last performance. He died shortly after this film was completed. Um... 
it, it is it is incredible. I'm always one that is always checked into a story, and this has such a rich story and such a shocking ending that um, whenever those ending those shocking endings come in such a realistic way in a in an incredible story, it it moves me. And this film has stuck with me ever since I saw it. Uh, back in 2007, 2008, somewhere in there. So uh, when when I heard this list, the f- best foreign films of my lifetime, it's the first film that popped into my head, and really no other film could have been number one for me. Well, you haven't seen a separation. Let's ma- let's make that clear. Of the films I'd seen, this oh yes, no, no other film could have been number one. Well, it's a great pick, and uh, I actually saw it with uh, Professor John David K. Winnikin and the uh, German class that I was in at uh, Concordia University, where Terry and I first met, and we're both students there. And it's always a good idea to see these foreign films with groups of people, because it's great to kind of talk about them afterwards. And I actually saw it on my birthday, and it was really awesome, because we all went to Starbucks afterwards and basically just talked about how great this movie was that we had seen. And um, it was, you know, obviously it was a German class, but it was just awesome you know talking about the movie and uh, the, the the incredible experience it was of watching it all right do you have any uh, honorable mentions oh that's a great question um i, I get I, I i'm not really sure i've seen you know all i i watch more for i would like to think i watch more foreign films than english language films so uh it's hard to say um Gosh, uh, a film I was thinking about putting on the list was The Fast Runner, uh, Atanajrat, which is a film that was shot by an entirely Inuit uh, crew and actors, um, so in the Inuit language. Um, that would have been my North American uh, film that I would have selected, so maybe that's an honorable mention. That's a really cool film. Okay. Uh, I've, I've got a good list here of... Uh, it's a combination of a few different ones. Um, the one that I... that was definitely number six that I wish I could have fit on there is 2010's The Secret in Their Eyes. Uh, the original one, not the not the American remake, but uh, I right. remember that film was, was amazing the first time I saw it. Um, a couple films on here that stuck with me. Uh, Pan's Labyrinth was an amazing movie. Uh, 2004's Taeguki, which is a uh, Korean War film. Absolutely incredible. Um, it's one I need to go back and revisit. Uh, 2012's Amour was uh, a heartbreaking film. Um, another one that popped up on some, or it was a, uh, an Oscar nominee for foreign language film. That's how I found it. 2013's The Broken Circle Breakdown was yeah, a, a, good a, a very, very good film. Um, and then uh, one film that I remembered loving, but I don't really remember much about it now, is 2006's Three Times. It's a. Um, oh, oh I yeah, think the horror film. No, 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 no. This is a, I think it's Japanese film about, um, it's a love story told oh. in three different time, fr- time periods. It's told like oh, in like 1910, 1960, and 1990. Oh, I think I'm familiar. Um, yeah, I haven't seen that. I'm familiar with it, though. Yeah, it, it um, I, I don't remember much about it, but I remember it was, it was very good. And uh, the last one is one that I think we saw together. Um, we and either way, I saw it at the at the Portland International Film Festival years ago, and that's 2009's Terra Nova. It's a Russian film about a uh, a penal colony on a on a deserted island and the fight for these these people stuck in frozen Siberia, um, freezing their prison sentences off, uh, trying to get off their island. Yes. Did so you good see that films. with us? 
No, I did not see that with you. Oh, but okay. I've heard of that film. And maybe a couple others that just popped in my head right now. Two Days, One, uh, one Night, which was my best film of 2014. Awesome movie. Uh, one of the most emotional experiences I've ever had of a movie. Uh, the Decalogue, Krzysztof Kieslowski's epic 10-part series um, made in 1988. The Best of Youth, which is a six-hour Italian epic originally made for TV by the director Marco Tullio Giordano. And uh, Au Revoir Les Enfants by Louis Mal, and there's so many, so many to name, it's impossible to name, like Water for Chocolate, uh, you know, the list could just keep on going forever, so basically any foreign film is uh, worth seeing, with, the, with maybe a few exceptions. This was definitely a list tailored for you. Yeah, I know, so you can't put me on the spot and say honorable <laughs> mentions, it's just impossible, you know. But. Here's the funny thing, though. Uh, we we always give you so much crap every time because you have to throw in the random French film into every list we have, and this list didn't have any French films because you went with a German film as your European uh, submission. Yeah, I noticed that too. Um, uh, yeah. If you had to pick I, a I French could... film, what French film would be in there? I mean, the first one that comes to my head is Au Revoir Les Enfants, which okay. came out in 1987, so it just came out the year I was born, um, but I'm sure if I had a little more time to think about it, I would think of something equally good or great. Okay. Uh, so, so in, in case you're keeping score, Terry had two French films, Zach had none. There you go. But, but my list was a lot more cosmopolitan than yours. Had <laughs> your a lot more your list was impressive. That, that was quite an undertaking to, uh, to take there. Uh, I mean, yes, it would be easy to come up with five French films, but, you know, not so easy to come up with, uh, you know, Africa from each and continent. Yeah. Iran and Canada. And, uh, yeah, so. All right. Uh, so let's get into our, our game here. So since it's just the two of us, we can't really do our, our trivia game, so instead we're going to play two games with our power rankings. Uh, the first will be our, our regular uh, Guess Adams list game. Uh, the winner will get to choose our topic for next podcast. Our second game is going to be guessing Todd's list, and this will count as our trivia game. So the winner of Todd's predictions will be asking the other to watch a movie that will be reported on next podcast. So uh, let's start with Adam's list. Um, Zach, I, I know you said you had a bit of a tough time coming up with this one. Has Adam seen five foreign language films? That would be my question. Um, anyway, the <laughs> list I went with uh, is Battle Royale, Life is Beautiful, Princess Mononoke, Amelie, and Pan's Labyrinth. Okay. Um, so what I did is I went through, and and this this burned me last time. So Adam, hopefully you uh, you actually did something right this time. Um, I went through Adam's top ten films. Uh, for for as far back he was born in 1989 so from 1989 to present and picked out all of the foreign language films that went in there uh, there were eight of them and from those eight I went with hunches and went and went from there so here's my here's my list my uh, number five train to Busan number four Amelie number three spirited away number two battle royale number one life is beautiful that's that's my my prediction. So now let's pull up Adam's list. Adam's top five honorable mentions: Train to Busan. Uh, How did you know Train to Busan? Well, it, you it was it in up. his okay. top ten. It was in his top ten like well, last year, or the year before. Howl's Moving Castle, The Raid Two, The Orphanage, and Amelie. Well, that's helpful. Okay, uh, number five: Ida. 
Number That's a good one. Number four, Big Bad Wolves. Uh, number three, The Hunt, which is one of the eight I had. It's just one of the ones I didn't pick. Number two, Pan's Labyrinth, which I also left off the list. Thank you, Adam. And number one, Spirited Away. I got one. Yeah, I got one also. Which one did you get? Pan's Labyrinth. And where did you have it? Number one. You had a number one, and it's number two. Yeah. I had Spirited Away, which is number one. I had it number three. Ooh. <laughs> mm. uh, I'm gonna give I, this to you because you because okay. you had I mean you had his number two number one and I had and Amelie I, as my number two which was his honorable mention yeah well I had two in his honorable mention because I had Train to Busan and oh, Amelie well but you cheated but well I'm going with I I had a further distance between the one I got like I've You've also met Adam. I've never met Adam before. I'd like to add that to every single segment of this that we do. <laughs> How did he not have Battle Royale? I know! That's, that's pretty shocking. Dude, Adam. Adam. He must have forgotten it. As always, you disappoint me. <laughs> every time I don't win and we're not on the same, wave, same wavelength, you disappoint me. Okay, so Zach will be uh, picking our our power ranking topic for the next time. But now let's get to the, uh, to the important one here. And this is Todd's list. I think this is a, a much more interesting uh, exercise here is picking Todd's list. First, before we get into this, since we aren't doing Oscar, uh, Oscar trivia this time or our trivia game, uh, it's kind of just morphed into trivia in general, instead of just Oscar trivia. Uh, I lost trivia last time or no, you lost trivia last time. Anyways, Todd won, and he made me watch 2001 film Bully, directed by Larry Clark. Since he is not here, I do not feel comfortable talking about it, because it's going to be quite a good conversation between us about that film. So we're going to wait till Todd is, uh, is present on the podcast once again uh, to discuss this uh, wonderful landmark creation of cinema here uh called bully that um he was sure that i would love and uh and uh as you can tell i i totally i said some sarcasm in this totally did let's get into todd's list so zach go okay uh number five tegucki brotherhood of war number four cinema paradiso number three holy motors number two memories of murder and number one battle royale okay so with this, um, I kind of went a little bit with what you did, because when it comes to power ranking, Todd is the king of establishing arbitrary, subjective uh, rules on his list that completely sway how his list goes. So I decided he didn't go quite as far as you did. I'm going to say he only went with one film per country or per language. So that's what I went with on on this one. So I'm saying number five, The Best of Youth. Number four, A Prophet. Number three, Four Months, Three oh, Weeks, and Two Days. One. Number two, A Separation. Wait, what, what was number one, three? Four Months, Three Weeks, Two Days. Okay. Uh, number two, A Separation. And number one, Teguki. Okay. How much you want to bet he's got Battle Royale in there? Because I didn't say it this time. Okay. 
by the way, Four Months, Three Weeks, and Two Days is also an outstanding film. We didn't mention that, That's but true. Uh, absolutely incredible foreign film from Romania. Oh, oh, Todd. Todd gave his predictions for uh, for oh, for Adam's list. Um, so uh, let's see here, Todd. Let's see here, Todd would have gotten one, and it's the same one I got. Uh, he had number five, Wreck. Number four. Train to Busan, number three, Amelie, number two, Life is Beautiful, number one, Spirited Away, which actually was his number one, so technically Todd would have won, but you have to be here to claim your prize. So once again, if you see Todd... Yeah, you can't be... Can't, can't be MIA. <laughs> take a picture and tweet us. Uh, and, uh, okay, oh, and then he uh, he tried to predict my list. He said, I'm sure Terry's list was like Pan's Labyrinth, The Lives of Others, Old Boy, Diving Bell and the Butterfly, and Letters from Iwo Jima. Only got two, ha ha. Um, and, uh, Zach's was probably Jean de Florette slash Manum of the Spring. Uh, La I Bella... wasn't alive when those films came out. Oh, yeah, he didn't, he didn't take that into account. La Bella Noisus, uh, Au Revoir Les Enfants, uh, Two Days, One Night, and The Lives of Others, or Tony Erdman, starring Peter Simonoshek. Um, there you go. Bingo. How could I forget? Yeah. Uh, now for mine, I have these honorable mentions in alphabetical order. Four months, three weeks, two days, Amoris Peros, Holy Motors, The Horse Thief, Spirited Away, and Teguk Gi. Well, there go two of mine. Um, uh, yeah. For the top five, I went with one per country, or else it would have looked a little different. Well, I, I predicted that. I think that's worth something. Okay, number five, All About My Mother from Spain. Still Almodovar's best oh, film. The melodrama is impossible to shake and features a handful of Oscar-worthy performances. Number four, La Haine from France, a brutal black-and-white hood movie with the best performance a, Vincent Castle can possibly give. It's social commentary. That's a total, that's a total Todd movie. I should have got that. That's, a, that's like a total Todd movie. <laughs> social commentary makes it almost timeless. By the way, I did the same thing with Todd and went through and picked all his top ten, or all the movies in his top ten. Um, Lahane was in there. All about my mother was not in his top ten uh, of any year. Number three, Memories of Murder from South Korea. Uh, Jun Ho Bong's crime drama masterpiece is the best film of 2005. It has the format that has inspired many TV series since, including the likes of True Detective. Uh, number two, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon from Taiwan. The gold standard of martial arts movies. It is breathtaking and will never be eclipsed or get outdated. And number one, what did, what do you know? I called it Battle Royale from Japan. One of my favorite movies of all time. It is more relevant now than ever. Still every bit as bold, violent, and darkly funny as it was in 2000. So I put it on Adam's list. He doesn't pick it. I leave it off of Todd's list and he puts it number one. I didn't get a single thing right. <sighs> Yeah, I, I got Battle Royale and Memories of Murder. So Dude, I, I, think but I, predicted, I predicted his arbitrary rule. That's got to be worth something. I think you should just make him watch a film just because he's MIA. I, 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 think, I think so. I think we... Maybe we, Elizabethtown. Yeah. <laughs> Punishment. Well, technically you get a pick. So you can, you can pick true. a movie that both of us have to watch. Or just him. Well, I... Th- Hmm, I like this. I think you should have to watch a separation. I mean, you know, I going over fair. it, being being my number my number one film of all time at this point. I think it's uh, you know it only makes sense. So. 
Okay. Okay. And, and are you going to pick something for Todd to watch? I will pick something for Todd to watch. He's already seen a separation. Okay. So. All right. So, uh, so stay tuned for what Todd will have to watch. We'll come back with, uh, with three separate uh, trivia reviews uh, next podcast. Okay. It is now time to move into our quote of the day. Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack, you bastard. Quote of the day. And for our quote of the day this time, uh, we decided to do something a little different. Uh, earlier today, we took up some of our, our precious Sunday time, our precious weekend time, to uh, pull off one of the uh, one of the more important moments of uh, of the fall, and that is our fantasy football draft. Right, Zach? You know, yeah. I mean, we're just so awesome. You're you're going into a lot of details about our lives. We should point out that we're both married, which is somewhat amazing. Not to each other, but that you know, so, some people out there find us attractive people, which is remarkable. And in and all the and movies and I think the you're 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 again bearing the lead here. We're both married. And both of our wives are in this fantasy football league. <laughs> uh, yes, I forgot. I forgot that. Yes. Yeah, and and both of our wives have team names that are uh, that are movie related. So well, uh, tell us your wife's name because I didn't understand it. It's it's one of the dragons from Harry Potter. Ah. Uh. Yes. Well, my wife's name is the Sunken Place because that's the way she feels when she has to do fantasy football drafts. Yeah, we we needed an extra team, so uh, so she got in. Yes, Thanks, normally Sammy. she would never do it. <laughs> yes, thank you. I'm sure she's listening to this. Oh yes, she's a she's an avid listener. I'm sure. Um, oh, absolutely, yes. <laughs> so, anyways, well, uh, they, they we're kind of already talking about what we're doing for quote of the day and. Um, Zach and I have kind of been going back and forth on uh, on our fantasy football league for a while now, in giving our team name uh, names that are quotes from uh, a specific movie. Uh, Zach's movie has been Sideways, and my movie has been Apollo thirteen. So for the past, I don't even know how long we how long have we been doing this. Well, I have uh, seven team names that I found that I've had. 17 or 17? No, 7. 7. <laughs> <laughs> no, feels like 17, doesn't it, though? <laughs> All right, I got I to gotta go back and see how long I've been doing this. So uh, so while I'm looking mine up, you uh, you tell us how uh, what yours have, uh, have been over the years. So th- this probably won't be interesting unless you're a passionate fan of Sideways or Apollo 13, like clearly we are. But, uh, but every we really year don't I care if you don't care. <laughs> well that uh, that's true too you would have stopped listening probably about two hours ago um but anyway uh so uh here are some of the team names i've had that are based on uh, obscure references from sideways dr Derek summersby frass canyon aj spurs which is where uh they go toward the end of the movie Derek's wallet 70 dot 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 something five clicks jackson and my name this year is Nutty Eat'em Cheese. Now, I will add that I've always wanted to name a team right past the Buffalo, but unfortunately, Yahoo has a character's limit, but that would be my, my dream team name. 
All right, so uh, I believe you've been doing this one year longer than I have. Dr. Derek Summersby uh, was one year uh, beyond my, my Apollo 13 film name or uh, team name. So my team names are uh, Engine 5. Uh, what's the story on you Engine don't, 5? You don't, you, don't, you don't need Engine 5. It's not necessary. We'll be okay as long as we don't lose another one. Uh, gentlemen Intentions. Gentlemen, what are your intentions? I'd like to go home. Uh, let's see here. I didn't write them down. I'm going through them as we go Gentlemen's along. Intentions sound sounds like a sounds like a male porno a little bit. Yeah, it, do, it does sound a little a little uh, a little, a little fishy there, but yeah. Oh, this one wasn't. I, I went away from uh, from from Apollo 13 one year, and I did. I got Matsui from uh, it was uh, Paul Rudd from Knocked Up. Even though it was a baseball draft, and I had it as the name of a football team, that's disappointing. And it also wasn't. It also wasn't Apollo thirteen. I know that's disappointing. I should have. Uh... Okay. I wonder um, if he was wearing his KU hat at that baseball draft. He should have been. He should have been. Uh, losing all three of them. Flight. Now I'm losing all three of them. I am tired of half the Western world. Knowing how my kidneys are functioning. We know these movies way too well. You realize this? That would be a good name for our podcast. Losing all three of them. Losing all three of them. That's what happens every every time. Uh, sit down, Conrad. That was last year. And um, my team name this year might be the most obscure. Uh, because my team name this year is... Uh, good Thinking. And... Uh, it, it's referring to the moment when, uh, when uh, everyone's back in the in the command module, and Jim Lovell sees a sticky note on the on the control panel saying no, and uh, and he asks Jack Swigert what is that, and he says, oh, I was I was getting a little punchy, and I didn't want to cut the limb loose with you guys still in it, and so he put a no sticker over the button that would send them off into space all alone, and Jim's only response is. That's good thinking. So that that's my team yeah. name. I like my team name better than yours. In fact, I I would bet you a beer that Todd likes my team name more than yours. Well, yeah, because Todd likes Sideways more than more than. Yeah, uh, but it's just a better name. I mean, good Paul thinking. 13. I actually had to ask you what that meant. I didn't. Yeah, even but really you knew it immediately. Line. Like your well, first guess, guess was right on. Nutty eat him cheese is a very iconic scene. You know. Yeah, but that, that kind of defeats the purpose. Is it's too iconic. The point of these is to find <laughs> the off uh, like AJ Spurs. Nobody knows what that well, is. Yeah, well, that was a good. Uh, that yeah, I mean that, that was like the inspiration there. Thanks again for listening, and uh, we will catch you next time on the Almost Sideways podcast. Have fun watching movies. Ta-ta. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.